vengeance. I am the knight. I am Matt Lazowitz. And welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what you up to tonight? Oh, same old, same old recording a show, Matt, but I got a question for you. As a man with multiple loves in his life, how are you going to handle Valentine's Day? What's the plan? Well... Fortunately, neither of my partners are particularly big on Valentine's Day. Oh, you lucky son of a bitch. Yeah, especially Amber. You've got to remember, Amber, for many, many years, worked in and around chocolate. Yeah, I, so I, I see that. Yeah. Amber worked when we first met at Godiva, you know, the, the chocolate place. And they do fresh dipped strawberries. So Amber spent like the days leading up to Valentine's Day just dipping, decorate, dip, decorate, dip, decorate nonstop for like two days. She did that for multiple years. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. Since then, Valentine's Day, no real appeal. <laughs> and, and Laura's just not that into it and again as we both have multiple partners it's like it's just easier to not even worry about the logistics fuck you hallmark fuck you restaurants <laughs> oh yeah restaurants and chocolate shops and oh boy i do not envy anyone who has to deal with valentine's day honest to god many many years ago so before I met Amber, so we're talking 17, 18 years ago, hadn't been paying attention and neither was the person that I was going out with and had like a second date on Valentine's Day. And neither of us were thinking about the date. So, uh -oh. oh, yeah. So we just went to a restaurant. And it was crowded as hell. We're like, oh, shit. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, it, it I think we wound up getting borrow at the mall because there was nowhere oh, else God. where we could get any food uh, was was there another date after that yeah yeah okay it was you know it was someone who we wound up not having that much in common but we went to the theater a couple times and that time neither of us held that against each other since we both weren't paying attention to the fact that it was valentine's day good call so my ex-wife and I, our anniversary was on the 9th. So that was convenient. We could celebrate the anniversary and just ignore Valentine's Day. I don't I don't think Abby and I have have a Valentine's Day, you know, thing, but I should probably check with her before I make any kind of definitive statements on that. Probably a safe bet on that one. Yeah, but it's a fake ass holiday in general. Oh, oh, absolutely. What? But but I'll tell you this. I'll tell you my one cancelable uh Valentine's Day opinion. I fucking love those conversation hearts. No, I know a lot of people who love a good conversation heart. Like uh, I don't know what it is, but chalk candy, man, I'm here for it. <laughs> oh, it's a Tuesday this year. Okay. Tuesday night is me and Amber's date night. So that'll be a date night on the couch. 
<laughs> we'll rent something or we'll pick a movie on some streaming service that we both want to see that we haven't yet and we'll order in something nice and then we will spend our time with our real valentine best the cat because she is the one that everybody loves everybody loves best looking to see if she's glaring at me because i'm talking about her she is not currently but yes this it is that time we are recording we're recording considerably earlier but y'all will be hearing this a couple days after valentine's day and so we decided that this week we would be doing three stories that feature three of Batman's love interests who, you know, didn't start out as super villains or assassins or something. The normies. Two of them, at least, very much so. The the first. Oh, story, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that is a very good clarification there. Very good. The first two are very much normies. The third is is not. But not a villain. Not a villain. The first story of the night is Strange Apparitions. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, numbers 471 to 476. The writer is Steve Englehart. The pencils are by Marshall Rogers. The inks by Terry Austin. Colors by Rogers, Jerry Serp, and Glynis Oliver. Letters by John Workman, Milt Snappen, and Ben Oda and edited by E. Nelson Bridwell and Julius Schwartz. The cover dates are July of 1977 to April of 1978. This legendary detective comics run by Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers brought back Golden Age foes Hugo Strange and Deadshot, introduced legendary love interests Silver St. Cloud, created the unforgettable visual of the Laughing Fish, and brought a new level of maturity to Batman comics. First note of the night, uh, problematic creator watch, Julia Schwartz, still noted sexual harasser. Dick bag. Yep. Now, as a, a something for the record, I know that often the trade, for instance, of Strange Apparitions is a 10-issue trade, including the two issues before these and the two issues after. I considered doing the full 10, but when people describe this run, they talk about the Englehart and Rogers stories. So I wanted to focus in on that six issue chunk because while you meet Silver in the previous couple issues and the couple issues after deal sort of with the fallout of the relationship the whole arc of Silver and Bruce and Rupert Thorne are really in these six core issues. And they're the six issues that are actually by Englehart and Rogers. The first two are Englehart with Walt Simonson, and the last two are Marshall Rogers, but with Len Wein. So I chose to do these six as one story, and we will eventually do those other two two-parters as separate entries. Well, we can't not do Len Wein. Jeez. Yeah, Len Wein, Marshall Rogers, introduction of Clayface 3. So, Maybe Clayface 3 we could pass on, but man, it, the creative team does sound nice. It is. It's a, it, I remember it being a, a good story, and here's the thing i think you can have the different incarnations of clayface it's when you've got all of them together that it gets unwieldy 
Uh, it's just kind of highlighting how all of this is nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a hat on a hat on a really dirty head. Uh. <laughs> and in all fairness, these six issues are really four stories, two two-parters and two one-offs. But those subplots are so important to the narrative that I feel like this can be treated as one big story with almost the the superhero Batman stuff as maybe not secondary to the corrupt politician and romance stuff as equal footing with those. I can't decide whether I like how all of the stories are tied together or whether it feels forced. I can't really make up my mind because the one that sticks out in my mind the most is that what we get right before 475 and 476, it's like Joker hiding in the shadows, watching the fight with Deadshot. Like, ooh, what's Joker up to? Find out in the next issue. Like, it's a little hokey, but also... I like the thinking that goes into all of it, right? They're they're making an effort to make this one cohesive narrative of, you know, Batman always having to deal with shit. And each issue before that, maybe not the first, but the three leading up to that have one or two panels of Joker each issue. It's teased out because you see him at the auction mm-hmm. for Batman's identity Then when Penguin goes back in the next issue, he's up in the balcony. And then there's that panel there. So they're like, really, like, he's coming. He's coming. You're all waiting for Joker. And here he comes. This might be the single most important, quote unquote, Batman story that we haven't done for this podcast yet. Really? Yes. These are often held up as some of the most important Batman comics ever because it treats Bruce Wayne, A, as an important part of the mythos, but matures Bruce Wayne. He has a real relationship with Silver. And that's the first real romantic relationship that Batman ever has. He and Selina at that point are very much, you know, 66, where there's tension, there's a bit of flirting, but she's always on the wrong side of the law. And Julie Madison was exactly what we saw. It was was very stiff. It was very golden age. And Vicki Vale and Kathy Kane Batwoman were there both because of the popularity of the the Superman Lois Lane dynamic of the love interest trying to figure out the hero's identity and as a response to Wortham. Mm. This was the first time that Batman or Bruce has a real love interest where he has to struggle with how do I have a relationship with this person? Talia, I guess, technically does come before uh, silver but there there's not that same tension because she she knows the identity and there's never any doubt that bruce is going to be with talia or make any kind of decision that will change the fact that he's batman here he's struggling 
this is sometimes addressed as the story where Batman goes through puberty. Ha! <laughs> uh, there wasn't even a single X-rated scene, though. I'm stuck on this idea of this being the most important thing that we haven't covered. Like, what, what else would you think would be in that discussion? Year two, possibly, just because it's a thing that people reference. Oh, and R.I.P. That's probably the biggest story of the modern time that we have that and court of owls are the two probably most important batman stories of the past 20 years and we knocked court of owls out right so r.i.p and this were probably the two because while people talk about year two year two is often talked about as wild and people either love it or hate it and Mm. it's qualitatively not as good as something like year one or a lot well, of no of course not but it's memorable <laughs> ominous there, there are a lot of good stories but important are fewer and farther between and i mean you could also argue that we haven't covered first appearances of a lot of the major rogues we still haven't covered the first appearance of Catwoman, of Penguin, of Riddler, of Two-Face. But first appearances, while important, aren't transformative. They add to the mythos, but this story theoretically transforms the mythos. This gives a whole new level of character to Bruce Wayne and to Batman. And in all fairness, is stunning to look at. Oh, it absolutely is. But let me ask you this. So we kill off Hugo in this story. How do we bring him back? Uh, He fakes his own death, basically. He, while in Europe, he studied the same technique that we know that Batman used that allows him to lower his heart rate to a point that he appears dead. And so he's basically using technology and stuff to just fuck with Thor. (laughs) And he uses it. That's why... Batman is able to find the chemical detector that he uses to catch Joker. Because Strange is actually around and leaves it here and uses it to get Batman there because Strange wants Batman to prove that he's smarter than Joker because nobody else should be that important to Batman other than Strange and Strange's own opinion, as we see in the story. This is the first story where we really start seeing that Hugo Strange, who is obsessed with Batman. And again, he is here in the bat suit. Yep, this is the first time. And then we see it in Prey, and we see it again in Monster Man that we covered last week. What a little fucking weirdo. Oh, yeah. And this is in many ways a direct uh, continuation of Monster Men. Yes, I had forgotten that there were Monster Men in this story. And it's like, oh, right, yeah, we get Monster Men here. Although... Boy, we get kind of a cop out on the Monster Men because the Monster Men surrounding Silver St. Cloud in the phone booth. And then we cut away and she's just in the hospital the next issue having passed out. It's like, wait, so the Monster Men just sort of walked away after she passed out? That doesn't seem right. It's not the the worst cop out we'll talk about tonight. And I think a lot of that is probably the more serialized or non-serialized nature of these stories that even the two-parters, each issue stands pretty well on its own. 
and people weren't expecting to read every issue. And this was also a period where Detective is bi-monthly. That's why these six issues take quite so long to come out, why it takes nearly a year for these issues to be released, because Detective was only coming out every other month. What a weird world that is. I was going to say, imagine a time when you only had two Batman titles and one of them was coming out every other month. I'm trying to figure out how best to, to discuss this because, again, these are four somewhat distinct stories. The Hugo Strange story, the Penguin story, the Deadshot story, and the Joker story. One way or the other, we're going to save the Joker for last because in many ways, that is one of the greatest Batman and Joker stories of all time. Laughing Fish is a big deal. And I was tempted to almost break it out on its own, but no, it needed to be in here because the run doesn't work if you don't get the, the payoff of Silver and Hugh, and Rupert Thorne at the end. Thorne is fascinating to read because I think so many people have gotten used to Thorne as just a mobster as he was in Batman, the animated series versus here where he's boss Tweed, where he he's running a political machine. He's a graft. I was going to say grafty and that's not a word. He's a, a corrupt city councilman who's getting kickbacks and he's not exactly a mobster, but he's got, thugs and i don't know how much he's doing that's actively illegal but he's getting so much money and so much kickbacks from running gotham the way he is it's a different version than what we've gotten used to over the recent times thanks to batman the animated series and in many ways it's a more interesting version of the character right it's very easy to show just a an untouchable mobster but someone who has to maintain this public facing persona this elected politician and making all of these connections throughout Gotham society and all of these plots and schemes like it's it's a pretty fascinating take unto itself yeah i think he's he's a more interesting figure here and i think if Batman the Animated Series had come out a few years later, it would have been the Roman as opposed to Thorn. But there wasn't a real recurring mobster character in Gotham before the Roman. So you Batman went should Thorne. always be fighting the mob. <laughs> yeah. We've had numerous versions of the five families in Gotham. But we've also now have various villains that are also mob type characters we'll get to another one later tonight black mask great white shark and the way penguin is now treated penguin should be the boss of bosses most of the time i agree with that because it's a way for penguin to have an a degree of power and a degree of respect from someone because that's what penguin's always looking for even here his outwitting of batman is to prove that he's better even though we don't have the cobble pots as a first family of gotham at this point penguin is always looking to be a member of the elite i mean you get that as far back as 66 with you know penguin running for mayor 
And I'm sure if we read some Golden Age Penguin stories, there'd be that vibe in places too. You dress him that way and he's got to be this sort of social climber among supervillains. Uh, but of course here he's stealing somebody else's gimmick with his his little clues and his wordplay. Oh yeah, this was very much a Riddler story just with Penguin in there because the gimmick was birdie. The Penguin issue is the least of these five. It's still a good comic. It's the least of these six comics. I said five a second ago, I meant six. The Of the others, the other five are better. That's what I was trying to say. And that's still slouch in this bunch. Oh, yeah. And you've got to also remember, Engelhart clearly has a deep affection for the Golden Age. Because he brings back Hugo Strange and Deadshot, who haven't appeared since Strange since Detective 46, and Deadshot since Batman 59. And Engelhart, I, I don't want to blame him for this, A, because I don't want to speak ill of the dead, and he didn't beat us over the head with it, but he's the first creator I can think of who does the nods to other creators in street names and place names. Uh, not just street names and place names, but character names. Yes. That gets a little weird. Yes. The the guy named Jerry Robinson who works for Wayne was odd, but he's the one who gave us Finger Alley in here. The Fox Gardens restaurant after Gardner Fox. The convention that Silver is bringing up is the Weisinger something or other after Mort Weisinger. You've got a, a, a Whitney Ellsworth. There's an Ellsworth building. And you get a giant uh, typewriter out of the Dick Sprang big props. So that's all very much a Golden Age homage. We talked about the Hugo Strange and, you know, Hugo doing his thing, Deadshot. So the two things we really, and I'd like to spend a little time on, and this might run long for this segment, but at least one of these stories is not going to have as much to it, so we can run a little longer on this one. Uh, we need to talk about Laughing Fish, and we need to talk about the relationship with Silver. Do we want to do Joker first or Silver first? Correct me if I'm mistaken, but we have we have covered Laughing Fish before, right? No, we've talked about it, but we haven't actually done these two issues. Why the hell did I read Laughing Fish? I I must have read it for something. I thought for sure we had covered it before. No. Now, here might be the thing. Have you seen the Batman the Animated Series episode that adapts it? Oh, of course. So that story, if you remember, actually takes the beginning of Laughing Fish, but as opposed to the end where here you've got the battle across the skyline. The ending there is the end of five-way revenge with the shark tank, except it's Bullock, not Joker's henchman who he's pushing into the shark tank. So you might in your head, remembering that adaptation, feel like you covered it because we did five-way revenge that has the same end as <laughs> that episode. I swear, like, why did I read... 475 if not for this show in any case let me point out then joker 
would not be seeking a copyright in his uh, chemically mutated fish, it would be perhaps a trademark as a good or service, uh, especially one bearing his likeness. You can get, uh, no, no, excuse me. Oh, God. Mm -mm. No, Uh -uh. patent. Oh, wow. I was about to go real bad. (laughs) Patent, patent. We do have an avenue where you can claim a patent in a plant that you engineer through human creativity and process. You can't just go find a plant out there in the world and claim that you have a patent on it. But if you crossbreed, you know, five different strains of apples and come out with a new apple, you can claim a patent in it. That does not apply to animals, but perhaps Joker would have an argument there. Hey, I poisoned these fish. I should have a, a patent in the poisoned fish. I think it would have been kind of hilarious if the guy had actually pointed that out and, and Joker's still like, no, 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 it's a copyright. Like, no, no, it's not. Joker it would not have listened. This Joker, it feels like has to be one of the real inspirations for the Batman, the animated series Joker. Because this Joker is that wild mood swing at times pretty funny mostly friggin terrifying joker and it's why laughing fish works so well in the adaptation and he's still got his original gimmick uh announcing the time of death and making it happen again Engelhart loves the golden age that is absolutely an homage to that first story i'm generally not a fan of breaking the fourth wall but there's this one page where the Joker is more or less talking to the camera and you actually see him like tear through the page as if he's turning it. And Rogers draws it so well that it's like, okay, I can live with the breaking the fourth wall. Also because that's, it's Joker and it's not done to death like it is with Deadpool or Ambush Bug or when they're treating She-Hulk that way. It's just a little one page gag and it happens and then you move on. It's gorgeous. And the Joker Venom infected cat is one of the creepiest visuals. Oh boy. I do. I would not want to run into a cat smiling at me like that. Part Cheshire cat, part nightmare. Yeah. And another bit of Joker shtick that we get here is he once again, you know, boy, he, he fell to his death, but we didn't find the body. You know how many stories end with Joker seemingly dying and them not finding the body? I think more than end up with him going to Arkham. Uh, How many Blofeld stories ended that way? It's what you got to do with a great villain. This is a great story. This is a really solid Joker story. It's beautiful to look at it gets batman and joker's relationship right it has i think one of the few canonical appearances of chief o'hara despite never getting a really good look at him i mean he's o'hara and there's a little bit of that accent so that was fun and it's a joker who's scary he is a homicidal genius and the the laughing fish Someday, and I don't think Batman actually appears in it, but there's a two-parter from Legends of the DC Universe, the sort of generic 
Legend of the Dark Nightbook where different creators can come in and do random stories from different time periods where Engelhart does an Aquaman Joker story where after Joker falls into the river, Aquaman grabs him and brings him to Atlantis to try him for, you know, poisoning all those fish. I don't remember much about it, but it's like, I kind of want to reread that now having read this and the eventual sequel, but we'll, we'll cover that someday. And it's not readily available, which is a nuisance. I don't think Aquaman would have the patience for Joker. I don't think most of the other heroes of the DC universe would have the patience for the Joker. And I don't think the Joker would have the patience for them. He needs a straight man. And they would just get too frustrated with him. And (laughs) they'd just call Bruce. Can you come and deal with this fucking guy? It's why Q works better with Picard than anyone else. Yes. Because Janeway tries to empathize with him. And Cisco just keeps punching him in the face. I assume you're reading the the Star Trek ongoing right now. I am not. Uh, I need to. Yeah, th- there's a reference to that when Q shows up in issue three and pops up on Cisco's ship. Cisco just keeps punching him in the head. It's great. It's a good book. It's a really good book. And especially if you're an old school fan, the sheer number of nods to next gen and ds9 and voyager it has nods to every show up to and including the animated series so it's thumbs up oh this is some deep cuts yeah references to enterprise and discovery and lower decks too so it's all caught up but final thing to talk about here is silver saint cloud now there are only three silver saint cloud stories there's this there's the sequel dark detective and there's widening gyre ah yikes yeah silver has an at times over large presence in the canon because again the fact that she is bruce's first really serious girlfriend despite only appearing in eight issues and then a six issue miniseries and then widening gyre nowadays i think we would have a lot to discuss about how sort of underdeveloped she is because she only appears very briefly and we don't get a lot of her outside of her feelings for bruce her own thoughts don't really pass the bechdel test because I don't think she thinks about anything other than Bruce. In all fairness, this is a Batman comic and we're only seeing her when she's around Bruce. So it's good that she's not thinking about the flower show while having a conversation with Bruce. But in contrast to the other love interests we're going to talk about tonight, they have their own motivations, their own lives, their own separate things outside of Bruce. St. And- Cloud, not so much. Not right. that we can see anyway, as was and- your point. Yeah. And when we see her in Dark Detective, she's defined by the relationship she has with her next love interest. And then there's Widening Gyre. I understand the import of the character. I understand why this is viewed the way it is. I wish that we knew her better. I wish we knew why Bruce loves her the way he does. 
we get little hints of it. I mean, she's able to determine that he's Batman, something very few people have done. So she's obviously intelligent. She's obviously able to keep up with him. But we don't get to see a lot of that because all she's doing is pining after him. Mm -hmm. I would have liked her to have put up more of a fight with Magda Strange's nurse or had somehow been more involved with the Deadshot thing. Although, again, she shows, you know, steel in her spine there where the guard is like, okay, I've got to go and call the cop. And she's like, no. You're going to call the press if you're going to call anyone. And she stands her ground firmly. You kind of understand why Bruce would love her, but you have to more infer it from what you read. I would have liked more show and less tell. Mm -hmm. Less him saying how much he loves her versus her showing us why he loves her so much. And outside of the just gross over sexualization and widening gyre i think you got certainly a better feel for that like she was an escape from you know the the cape and i think that that's always an interesting thing to consider when we're looking at love interests they should always be a tantalizing alluring idea like i can hang up the cape I can basically retire and I can be happy. It's like the last temptation of the Batman. And we saw the two of them happy in Widening Gyre. And I think that's probably the best thing you can say about Widening Gyre. That and the fact that it will never be finished. And for the first five issues, she's a really interesting, engaging character. It's the last issue where it gets gross with the explanation of the nickname and with her, <laughs> yeah, and with her letting him beat her up and then he'd be like, no, no, I understand. A, it's bad. I wouldn't want to see Batman hit a civilian who he's in a relationship with. And yeah, we rank Lightning Gyre. We're never going to have to rank part two. So we're, we're, we're good. Yeah, we're going to have to get to that other kevin smith batman story one of these days cacophony yeah but there's no silver in there that's just batman versus onomatopoeia i understand why people keep coming back to her because of that but i just want i wanted more of her in this mm -hmm. and when you only had six issues if if this could have been 12 issue run from these creators if we had had more time to build out that relationship i i think would it would have been better and it's not like there's a ton of silver in the previous issue she appears only two issues before and is not in them a lot it's not like those two issues are about batman and silver and these issues themselves are relatively short did these not come with backups or are we not getting backups they didn't come with backups. This was a period in the 70s where comics were only 18 pages and there were a lot of ads. Ain't that something? So not only is it uh, bi-monthly, but it's also 18 pages. Yeah. I remember reading some similar aged Marvel books and I was like, are they trimming these or were there backups? And I looked into it and it's like, no. Books in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, were 18 pages of story. Poor kids. 
Yeah. You know, I, and it's like, boy, people complained when comics went from 22 to 20. Do you imagine if they went from 22 to 18? Mm. But I think that pretty much does it. Uh, I'm all out. So that means it's time to put Detective Comics Strange Apparitions on the big board. Right. So we currently have 219 stories on the big board. Number one on the list is Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. Down at number 50 is Batman and the Monster Men, the first of the Matt Wagner Dark Moon Rising miniseries. And coming in at a sexy 69, it's Batman versus Predator number one. But in my heart, number 69 will always be made of wood. (laughs) Number 100 is Anarchy in Gotham, the first appearances of Anarchy. Down at 150 is Faces. Hey, more Matt Wagner. The Matt Wagner Two-Face story. Down at 200 is Days of Rage, the first meeting of the post-crisis Huntress and Batman in the last issues of her series. And hey, guess what? Down at the bottom at 119, it's White Knight. Still terrible. Okay, brief tangent. Did you see... Sean Gordon Murphy recently was talking on social media saying that a lot of people, most people love White Knight, but there are people who don't like it. And these are the reasons why. No, I did not see that. Take it. You didn't. All right. We are going to take a moment and we are going to read what Murphy. Oh, oh, I, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for this level of bullshit. Uh, I only had one beer tonight. I, I knew boy. Okay. Oh. This, by the way, at the time of this recording, this was less, this is less than two weeks old. So why is White Knight somewhat divisive online? People yeah. who like the book generally put it in their top 10. People who don't like uh. it really don't like it. They usually don't like it for one of two reasons. Number one, it's political. They read the book through their culture war lens and can't get past the triggery title. They assume I'm conservative, cop apologist, I'm not, and don't like that I haven't condemned their ideal of wrong think online. Or they see me uh, as a privileged, broy white guy with nice cars and a successful book. The uh, criticism is rarely that the book isn't interesting or the dialogue sucks, is that they don't agree with the premise, and I respect that and accept that there's uh, no winning them over. Okay? In case you haven't noticed from the things we like, we have no problem with politics in our comics. It's the fact that his politics are awkward. They are clumsy. They are not well-reasoned. The problem is that he is not nearly as smart as he thinks he is. And that shines through in every one of his books. Every single book, he tries to tackle something political, something historical, some big fucking issue, and it comes off like a three-year-old playing with a turd. It's just a spectacle. Everybody gets covered in shit, and it's just a terrible time for everybody except for the toddler. Number two, they don't know or accept that this is a new universe. They like Get the out, fuck out! They like pointing out that I messed up the order of the Robins. Initially I did, but I chose to let it play out, and I'm glad I did uh. Or they think I ruined Harley Ivy or Harley Joker, or they hate the idea of Bruce and Harley. 
Some accuse me of being an SJW by making Robin black or Asian. I did both. Uh, or by making uh, Terry half Asian. I did that too. Ah. Uh, so I will repeat my specific issue uh, with the treatment of Duke Thomas. And then I'll take up Harley Quinn. Duke Thomas is a distinct character with a distinct history and background. There is a history in comics and in media in general of treating characters, supporting characters especially, but characters of color as interchangeable. When you take a character name and you graft this completely different backstory onto that character, it feels like you are saying, especially when all, most of the other characters' backstories aren't changed that much, it is indicating that this character only matters as a name and who they are isn't important. That is what bothers me about the way Duke Thomas is treated in White Knight. I have no problem with him being Robin. I'm surprised that he wasn't made Robin in the main universe. And I would have liked that. You get the sense that Snyder was certainly pushing for it. Like he wanted to develop Duke Thomas as a sidekick, like he wanted to develop Harper Rowe as a sidekick, but it just didn't happen. Right. And I mean, we saw one of the, a possible future at one point where Duke was Robin. And I think if Damien's death had lasted longer, I think Duke would have been Robin for a while. But I also think they wanted to avoid the bait and switch that we got with Stephanie Brown, where she was only Robin for six months before they brought Tim Drake back. What a what a storyline mess that was. But let me let me speak to Harley here. So my reading of White Knight is a petulant man child sees a character who has become a queer icon and he says, no. That's not my Harley. My Harley is not queer. My Harley loves Joker and Joker loves her and it's their romance and their love story. And that's what Harley Quinn should be. It is so reductive. It is rolling back so much of canon. It is rolling back so much of what people have grown to love and accept and see themselves as being represented in the character. And it feels so pointless. It feels like such an intentional move to do violence. And I just hate it because I know he did not think about any of these issues. He just wanted to draw some sexy, naughty bits in his book. And nobody at DC told him no. Although I guess they did tell him uh, to take out the nudity. Uh, he's just such a stupid fucking shit. And I'm so angry now. Thank you, Matt. Sorry, but I when I read that, I felt like I wanted to address it because I wanted to say that, no, neither of those things are why we don't like that book. Or I guess in some ways they are, but not in the way that he's making it out that, oh, we just don't want politics in our comics or we're kind of racist. Ah, uh, he uh, has to be one of the least intelligent people in comics. Oh, I hate him so much. I'm going to just put in the, the chat the whole thread so you can, because there's far more to this. There's a lot of uh, back padding throughout this whole thing. 
we're not going to deal with that right now because we have to rank strange apparitions and then we have two other stories to discuss and this is already going to be a long episode so strange apparitions yes we're scrolling way up on this Mm. Uh, top 30 top 30 yeah for laughing fish alone if it were just laughing fish this would get top 30 but the resurrection of hugo strange and deadshot I mean, again, not resurrection is brought back from the dead, but resurrection as in return to the books. The introduction of Silver St. Cloud. Again, the deepening of Bruce Wayne as a character that makes this an important Batman story. So let's see. Crimson Mist is hanging out there at 20, and that is a fucking badass ride straight from hell and a lot of fun but i i'm definitely thinking i'm i'm definitely thinking top 20 we've got a few in here that the trick when you get between 10 and 20 is a you have a couple story three stories in there that feature batman but are not batman stories but are such good comics that they make that list and they feature batman heavily enough that they make it up there. Because we also have somewhere a little lower down the list uh, for The Man Who Has Everything, which is an equally great comic, but has Batman less than Kingdom Come, New Frontier, or Garden of Earthly Delights. And in that same conversation, Haikatia at 26. True. Yes, another one. I th- The thing is, what I'm wrestling with is, I think this is more important, capital I, than Nightfall because of how transformative it is for Batman. But I like Nightfall more. But I'm not sure, again, when it comes to the list, how important that is. How much, Whether I like something versus how much of a better comic this might be. And again, Garden of Earthly Delights. As good as this is, Garden of Earthly Delights is a better comic. But this is more of a Batman comic. And more important to Batman overall. If we were ranking Joker stories, Laughing Fish is probably number two behind Five Way Revenge. Uh, do we want to say that's the ceiling then? Five Way Revenge at 11? Yes. Okay. So we are basically between 11 and 20? Yes. Okay. You got Soft Targets at 12, which is another Joker story. And another one, actually, truth be told, that Batman is a fairly minor part of. But that is that more than any others, the shadow of the bat looms so heavily over Gotham Central that that's another, you know, yet Dracula isn't in a lot of Dracula, but he's in every page, even if he's not there. And that's probably the third best Joker story. But again, that's Joker stories, not necessarily Batman stories. I really do like Garden of Earthly Delights at 18. But Nightfall is just, I mean, the breaking of the bat as as a story moment, as a cultural moment. True. Nightfall is also capital I important. What I will also say, we've never gotten a really good adaptation of Nightfall. We've gotten an excellent adaptation of Laughing Fish. Uh, Very true. Which, Goddamn, is Dark not, Knight Rises. 
yeah, I mean, Dark Knight Rises, the Bane episode of Batman the Animated Series, neither of them do Nightfall justice. Nightfall is one of these stories where I'm shocked that DC hasn't done a two-part animated movie like they did for Death and Return of Superman, where you get part one with... they You almost break it up like you do here. It would have to be a three-parter. You'd have to do part one... With the breaking of the bat, part two with the rise of Azrael, and part three is Bruce reclaiming the mantle. I mean, you got to think that that's on their agenda, right? They uh, they got to keep making product over there in animation. Yeah, the only thing that's a shame at this point is you couldn't get Conroy because that would be a story that I would have wanted Conroy's Batman to do to do Nightfall. Oh, first, Matt, you make me angry, and now you make me sad. What are we doing here? Believe me, I mean that was just that just popped in my head. It's like. I, I felt the, the pangs. All right. We got to we gotta put this thing on the list so we can move on. Yeah. All right. I'm just going to pick a number. I cannot justify it. 15. I want to do one better, and I want to do 14. Uh, as much as Dark Victory is great, Dark Victory is a sequel. It's doing not a lot or anything really new. So I think 14 is Strange Apparitions. Okay. <laughs> That one discussion was almost the length of a normal episode, so we're going to have to spend a little less time on these next two. But it's Strange Apparitions. Again, it is an important, important Batman story. Our next story is The Return of Scarface. This is Batman Volume 1, numbers 475 and 476, and Detective Comics Volume 1, number 642. The writer is Alan Grant, with art by Norm Brayfogle and Jim Aparo, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Todd Klein and Aparo, and edited by Kelly Pocket and Denny O'Neill. The cover dates are March to April of 1992. After being released from jail, Scarface and the ventriloquist must reclaim their territory. Meanwhile, Batman must make a fateful decision about his relationship with longtime flame Vicki Vale, and whether he can reveal his secret identity to her. Part of why I picked this story is because of what a contrast it is to Strange Apparitions. There, where Bruce is so confident about not letting Silver learn his identity, while here he's struggling with whether or not he needs to tell Vicky to keep her. So the the romance angles are very different in the two stories. And we see Batman dealing with the loss of romance here, with the pain of being passed over of being dumped. And he does not take it all that well because he's Batman and he's Bruce Wayne. And he's rarely, if ever dumped, if he's ever dumped, it's not because there's somebody better for that person than him. It's because he's being Bruce Wayne and people get sick of dealing with that. And as we have here, Vicky insightful enough to figure out, uh, there's something you're not telling me. You're you're kind of phony, and I'm I'm tired of it. And which naturally leads him to conclude, okay, maybe if I come clean about being Batman, maybe I can keep this woman that I love, and who apparently means so much to me. I mean, Vicky had been a somewhat regular fixture on and off in the Bat titles at this point for at least a decade, for around a decade, on and off. More often on than off, she was there from the early 80s. There was, you know, some Batman 
Bruce, Selena, Vicky love triangle stuff in the early 80s. And you got to think this is three years after 89. So that gave the character a boost at that point because she'd sort of disappeared a little after the crisis. But then when 89 rolled around, it's like, oh, people now know who Vicky Vale is. Let's bring her into the Bat Books. Now, I assume this is not the first appearance of uh, of a particular character. Is that correct? Ventriloquist or Horton Spence? Uh, Montoya. Yes, it is. We were going to get oh. there. This is, the, this is the first comic appearance of Renee Montoya. And technically the first appearance. Montoya was created for Batman the Animated Series. But because of the lead time it takes to get animation done... Her first appearance in the comic came first. Huh. Yeah, this is indeed the first appearance of Renee Montoya. So... Which makes this a highly important story because <laughs> Montoya is probably the most significant supporting character added to the Batman mythos in those 30 years. So how did that work? Are the the guys on the show basically sharing scripts with editorial, just like letting them know what's coming up. Editorial sees that and thinks, oh, that seems like a neat idea. Let's put it in the books. I think it was more that they shared the Bible and the the characters that were going to be important in the show. And it's like, okay, so we're going to be taking all these characters and we're going to be introducing this character as a sort of the uniformed cop presence on the show, the other end of the triangle that is Jim at the top, Bullock as the detective, and Montoya as the street cop, because there aren't any patrol officers who are recurring characters in the comics, and we want one. And I don't know if the DC team thought it was a good character, or DC editorial was like, hey, they're going to be using this character a lot, so we need to introduce them in the comics too and of course the funny thing is none of that came up with harley because they thought harley was a one-off joke character who would never appear again because it was like ah she's fun to have in this one episode ah but she uh she's a sex pot so that's gonna sell for the nerds and i think if harley had had a different voice i don't know if she would have taken a put arlene sorkin's performance is so good that that sells that character. Yep. Yeah, it's just it's funny that this, you know, Montoya was introduced with the expectation she was be would be big. And well, they were right there too. I mean, Montoya is a character who has appeared all over the place. She's appeared not outside of the animated series. I mean, she was in Gotham, she was in Batwoman. I mean, she's had her numerous miniseries. She's been She's a major character. What you also get here is you get a love interest for Vicky Vale who is willing to do the things that Bruce isn't. This guy, he's a stand-up guy, he's tough, and he immediately opens himself up to her. And it's the thing that Bruce can't do. He's a character I wish we'd had a little more, again, a little more time with before they start the relationship, because that this is his first appearance. And he, I don't think, ever really comes back because Vicky's gone for, you know, years. But, you know, I have to say for 92, credit 
an interracial relationship was not something you got a ton of in 1992 in comics. No, I, I wouldn't think so. But this guy is basically around to get Vicky and then to get shot. <laughs> yeah, but at least they don't kill him. He gets wounded, but they don't kill him. And that's that's good because that would have been not good. No, shot in the legs, if I remember correctly. Yes, shot in the legs. Yeah, these are his only two appearances. He never comes back. There's a bit where he and Vicky are putting the screws to this drug dealer. This kid who's got to be what? Look at that kid. He couldn't be more than 20. I would not shake down drug dealers as a journalist. That seems hazardous. As is proven by the end of this. (laughs) But in a a more modern comic, a comic that was more in touch with some of the realities of America, it would have been a time to comment that this guy, this guy's a journalist. I mean, you learn eventually, you know, he knows martial arts and stuff, but he's not an intimidating presence, quote unquote. But you've got this scrawny late teens, early 20s white kid and he just happens to be a tall black man. And you could have played up the fact that this kid is probably afraid of him because of his race. That would be something you would talk about today. But in 1992, that wasn't something that was in the conversation. And you probably could have done some code switching in that moment. You know, this guy passing in, uh, in sort of the established white world. And then going with that more intimidating, quote unquote, street presence, uh, that would have been interesting to do. He does loom over the kid and sort of present himself more intimidatingly. But that would have could have been done if he were a white man, too. I think you're right. Code switching would have added to that. But again, this was 1992. That wasn't in the public conversation, the public consciousness. I mean, it was because... Race is always an issue in America, but it wasn't something that was talked about. Mm. It also grants a Scotsman. And he didn't show it in these three issues, to his credit. The only place I feel like he might have shown it is he got a phrase that Americans get wrong constantly correct. Oh. Scarface is talking and he says something that they'll have another think coming. That is the phrase. Another thing coming is like, play it again, Sam. Or, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. They're things that have become phrases, but aren't what the origin is. Mm -hmm. The origin of that phrase is, you've got another think coming. And he gets it right, which has to, in my head, sounds like Great Britain knows that phrase and uses it properly versus here in America where it's just become, it's another thing coming. Well, I'm just happy that Vicki Vale was not in hospital. Let's talk about the cover for four, what's 476. And that's one of the reasons why this one sticks in my head. Cause that is a striking cover. Uh, it is Batman taking off the cowl for Vicky. And then you get three pages into the issue and they're like, oh, it was just Batman's fantasy. Nah, 
Yeah, but it's a cover that would get you to buy that comic. Well, of course. That's what covers are there for. So we haven't actually talked about what is the actual plot of this, which is Scarface getting out of jail and in a fight with the street demons for his territory. It's a paint by numbers isn't right, but it's a very straightforward story. Yeah, it's uh, it's him taking Gak his... I can't think of any more B words. Uh, territory. Um, From, and, and trying to get Gak at Gatman. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Grant kept a dictionary open to the letter B next to him or a thesaurus. And every time he'd look up a word, would see if there was a B word that would fit in its place. <laughs> so he could once again stress that Wesker can't say the letter B as Scarface. There's a lot of bees in here. Yeah, we we get it. We get it. It's funny. Calling out the negative with the positive. So, I mean, I talked about, you know, interracial, the interracial relationship and how that was sort of maybe not transgressive, but uncommon at the time. I will say, and again, this is possibly the Scottishness in Grant. Having a character who's a black man named Brute is... Yeah, a little and by a little, I mean, quite a bit uncomfortable. And I think there could have been another less racially insensitive street name for that character, especially one that is, in essence, tortured at the end and murdered. Yes. But yeah, I mean, the main story, as you say, you know, we get some Gordon and Bullock and Montoya and Sarah. Gullock. Oh, God, could you imagine trying to do a ventriloquist episode where we did that the entire time? <laughs> no, that would be a bit that I would I would have to veto that bit because it would be singularly frustrating. And we'd have to keep going back and re-recording things because we would not remember it. No, of course not. And it would get irritating for the listener very fast. Son of a gitch. Ah! I do like the line after Bruce sees Vicky and Horton Spence kiss. He's telling himself it's none of his business and this and that. And just at the end, the end of that whole thing is the night and the war never ends. And it's just so like, yeah, that's what I have to do. That's that's the way this works. I'm going to just dig into my Batman-ness. Uh, I'm going to go punch crime. So... Another thing that this is just a, a moment that made me kind of chuckle. So ventriloquist or Scarface has a contact at the local military base a guy named Sarge called Sarge that he gets a tank and some explosives from this is 475. You got to think that's the same military base this is the closest military base that Bane breaks into and steals like, all their weapons at the beginning of nightfall. That's like a year and change of real time. So that's got to be month or two in comic book time. You guys got to this... work on your operational security there. I have a feeling like the government just shut that base down because, like, yeah, you, you don't have any more weapons because a luchador stole them after you let a tank be used to blow up a city block. 
Mm. Yeah. That's bad. That's yeah, real bad. There's going to be some court martials here, and then you're all getting reassigned to the single coldest base we have in Alaska. Have fun. Uh, keep us safe from those Canadians. I I did like the ending to this story because it is especially emotionally brutal. It's not Batman being able to take solace in being dumped. It's not Batman being able to be angry. Uh, it's just Batman like, oh, well, this is a this that was a chapter in my life that's over. Now, now I'm just sad. And part of why he chooses in the end not to is because he sees what love can do when Sarah Essen was willing to run into a building that she knew had a bomb in it to try to drag Jim, who they don't know where he is, but they haven't seen him out of the building. Yeah, yeah. And it specifically says, you know, I, I saw love almost kill them. Like to see two people in love and to think that that's a bad thing, to be willing to sacrifice yourself for a partner and to think, well, I, I can't go down that road. That would just be, that would be terrible. Like that is, that is emotionally brutal. Bruce didn't have it in him there. I don't have anything else. Uh, that means it's time to put the turn of Scarface on the gig gourd. That was a good use of it right there. I thought so. We were definitely, uh, definitely top half. Uh, that means now above 110. We're exactly at 220 now. Uh, I was a big fan of this story. I really did like it. Yeah. Where I keep thinking top half is higher than that because I can't get over that we've done so many of these friggin' stories at this point. So many. Just sort of a frame of reference, you know, one of one of my darlings, Thrill Killer, hanging out at 66 now. So yep. that's 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 the kind of territory we're dealing with. And Blades is down at 138. Oh, that is that is unfortunate. We'll we'll, we'll re-rank that for your birthday. Oh, I appreciate that. I mean, so you just said, how do you feel about this in comparison to Thrill Killer? Well, certainly the art is not bad here. I mean, you've got um, Bray Fogle and Aparo. I mean, Bray Fogle is the definitive, probably the definitive Batman artist of the late 80s into the early 90s. And Aparo was a torchbearer on Batman comics from the 70s through the late 90s. Yeah. But also, it's not uh, painted comics. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a mark for painted comics. But, I mean, this this story is more substantive. I mean, Thrill Killer is just a very nicely done, beautiful Elseworld that shouldn't have had a second chapter to it. You're not going to hurt my feelings if this is better, certainly. Let's pick a ceiling. I, I would not put this top 50. Uh, we, no. we got Batman versus the Mad Monk right now at 50. And I think this is... Uh, this is not as good. No. It's somewhere in the 60s. Because up at 60, it's not better than 59. It's not better than Bloodstorm. Because that's that's wild. And is a book that I feel like could have been better if it had, had a little bit more focus in some of the elements of it. Too much Joker, man. And again, New World Order is another one of my darlings. It's 60, the first JLA story, just because of that those four pages of Batman just beating up all those Martians and just proving that all he needs is, is his brain and he can 
win any fight. I love that. It, it's the starship mine of of comics. Yes. Okay. Here is sort of where I'm thinking. Do you think this is above or below Hush? Above. I was looking right at that, and I, I knew my answer before you even had the question out of your mouth. Then I think that's where this goes. I think this goes above Hush. Because above Hush is the first Joker story. And again, when you're talking important with a capital I, the first Joker story. So I think this is our new 63. Our final story of the night is Perchance. This is JLA number 90. The writer is Joe Kelly. The pencils by Chris Cross. Inks by Tom Nguyen. Colors by Chris Sotomayor. Letters by Nick J. Napolitano. Edited by Mike Carlin and Valerie D'Orazio. Cover date is January of 2004. Wonder Woman wonders if it's time to take her and Batman's flirtation to the next level and plums the depths of her subconscious to see if she and the Dark Knight might really have a future together. Mm, more Joe Kelly. Uh, I was going to say, uh, yeah, we're, we've got Will's favorite here, Joe Kelly, on this one. I feel bad now because, uh, you know, I saw that Dan had posted so many nice things about Joe Kelly and, you know, Dan was been a fan growing up and it's like he he's got to be an acquired taste. And it's also a matter of not necessarily reading his JLA, which isn't his best work, his Deadpool, some of his indie stuff, uh, I Kill Giants. What's so funny about Truth, Justice, and the American Way, Action 775, Four Eyes, uh, an image series set in an alternate Great Depression where uh, there's dragon fighting, like, you know, cockfighting, but they're dragons. He's got good stuff in his oeuvre. It's just the stuff we're reading is not the high point of his work. No. Uh, And this, this is not bad i like some of the concepts here uh i certainly like a swole ass wonder woman i mean she is she is ripped crisscross draws her huge yeah this is this is dangerously close to big barda Um, i was gonna say could you imagine what barda would look like barda would be eight feet tall and not be able to walk through doors no one ripped shredded muscle just entirely so I, I i don't hate that but again the first couple of pages entirely too quippy and the back half where it actually gets interesting where they are exploring these dreams which is it's kind of weird because they are framed almost as like alternate dimensions and different futures, but they're actually subconscious dreams, but you know, whatever they are fascinating little story bits to look at, but they read as very disjointed. Like it just, it hops from scene to scene to scene and you don't get enough with any particular scene to really kind of explore. Like we've got one that is, um an older paralyzed bruce living his final days on the mascara and it is uh what i took to be his sort of ritualized suicide 
um, and Diana like coming back for that. And that that could have been really touching, like just as always, you know, I, I tell my students this uh, in, in speech, focus on the good stuff, right? Build the whole book out of that scene or build the whole book out of a scene where Wonder Woman becomes a, a tyrant in Gotham and they're both encouraging their worst impulses of each other. Pick one of these ideas and fully explore it rather than just jumping from bit to bit to bit to bit to bit. I think you could have done two. You could have done a happy ending and a tragic ending, or probably they all would have had tragic endings, but one that is them ending peacefully, like the one the one you're talking about, and then also do the one where Joker murders Bruce and Diana snaps and kills the Joker. Yeah, that that was another bit that should have been explored more. A nice reflection on Superman snapping after Joker kills Lois and something like injustice. I think in the long run, the thing that keeps them apart, because I I honestly think Batman and Wonder Woman as a couple works better than Superman and Wonder Woman as a couple. Oh, of course. And I love how Bruce, you know, jokes, you know, after I'm dead, please don't, please don't do him. Please don't, <laughs> please don't be with Clark. But the thing that would always keep them apart is Diana does not have that one thing that Bruce can't get past. Diana, while it's not a first resort, Diana does not have any compunction about killing. She's a warrior. Right. And I think in the long run, the two of them would not work because sooner or later she would be in a situation where she felt like she needed to kill someone. And Bruce would be like, no, there's always another way. Someday we need to cover, well, we will cover Sacrifice and you have a setup to Infinite Crisis, uh, OMAC Project, because it's Sacrifice is sort of spins out of OMAC Project, where Maxwell Lord, who has mind control powers, controls Superman, gets him to beat the living shit out of Bruce, and then gets him to attack Diana. And in the end, after she uses the lasso of truth to break Lord's control, he's like, you can't watch him all the time. Sooner or later, I'm going to get him and I'm going to have him do other horrible things. And so Diana just grabs Maxwell Lord's head and twists it around. Ta-da! Because it's the only answer. But Bruce, of course, does not take that well. Because there's always another answer to Bruce. Build better gates at Arkham. Yeah, he really should invest in the other visions, we get four visions here, and each of them has interesting ideas. But as you said, none of them are fleshed out. Because the first one is the the Bruce as an old man, and they've lived a long life together, and now he's dying. And the second is she's Batwoman, basically. And they're in Gotham, and then part of it takes place on Olympus, in the afterlife, and the gods, and the Amazons, and Thomas and Martha up there on Olympus, and it's this sort of happy ending of sorts. There's five, excuse me, because then you have one with you know them fighting monsters alongside the Amazons, then the one where Joker kills Bruce, and then finally one with the two of them in what looks like a utopic Gotham where they're talking about the fact that they could never have children. 
And again, there's an interesting beat there where you could have spun out them having to look at what family means when you can't have children. Infertility is something that affects so many people. And I don't think it's used hallowly here, but it's used on such a surface level that it feels like if you're going to use something like that, it should be a part of the story. The fact that, you know, Bruce talks about how, you know, you did all these challenges for the gods and they still would couldn't grant you the ability to for us to have a child. There's there's a story with a capital S there. Exactly. Just like I think the one where she's Batwoman, which is a sick costume, by the way. Oh, yeah. That is a great costume. Crisscross, while he does have some rubber face with some of his characters, some of those faces are wildly over-exaggerated. As a draftsman, when he does design and when he does action, top-notch. Really good artist when it comes to panel flow and understanding action on the page. Yeah, again, there there's a lot to like in this book, um, but then there's just things that don't quite work and a couple of irritating beats. No, I completely agree. When I was reading those first couple of pages, it was like, oh, wow, Bruce is talking way too much during this fight and not just, uh, you know, giving orders. No, he's bantering with this Z-list villain. And the flirtation between Bruce and Diana, there's references to the the one kiss they shared during the Obsidian Age story where they both thought they were about to die. And Justice League, the animated series, is where I feel like that became a thing. Because there was a recurring subplot throughout multiple seasons of Bruce and Diana sort of doing a will they, won't they. We saw that in This Little Piggy. But there's another one where Bruce, as Bruce Wayne, and Diana are at a diplomatic ball and they're they're dancing together. And again, there's this chemistry between them. And in the end, here they choose friendship over the possibility of it going poorly. And I do love that at the end, the very end, Bruce is like, you have to tell me, it was terrible, right? And she's like, yes, Bruce, it was terrible. But the final panel the final memory is from that first vision where they gave their lives to each other and it's it's touching it really is it really is kelly can absolutely get the emotion in places it's just it doesn't always work and he's a little too quippy in places many places that's that's what a good editor would do for you the, the two pages of that first vision are the first 15 minutes of Up. Oh. Yeah. I mean, this ends, I mean, that vision, the last lines there are asking for one more day and Bruce, you know, saying, yeah, one more day. And I have this feeling like they've done that for a long time. Aww. What's the, the, the Princess Bride? Good night, Wesley. Sleep well. I'll likely kill you in the morning. 
Yeah. I, I Again, think... first you make me angry, then you make me sad, and then you make me sadder. Good job, Matt. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm firing at all cylinders tonight. Uh, you sure are. I don't know if there's much more. Again, this is this is a one-off. It, it tells its little story. It's Kelly's final issue on Justice League. This is where he he ends his run on a somewhat quiet issue. This isn't a you know big world shaking cataclysmic story. This is a character piece. Need more of that in comics. Yeah, I love a good one off characters doing character stuff. You can have some action in there. You can build the story with some action in it. But I think we're 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 good on this one, and we're running long as it is. So. That means it's time to put our chance on the gig guard. All right. So first thing I want to look for is where is the higher of the so bouncing. Okay. First thing I want to say, bouncing baby boy is at one seventy five. It's better than that. Yeah, I think this does go higher than that. I think it goes higher than 156, which is the first arc of Young Justice, another book that is too quippy by half. This only suffers that for a couple of pages versus Young Justice, where that is is treated like it's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start looking at a ceiling then. I don't think it goes much higher than Young Justice. I would go back and reread 151 Mad Men Across the Water first. I love Mad Men Across the Water. It's hey, it's a good fucking book. A uh, good fucking time. Yeah. Uh although you know my personal distaste for Detective Comics 824 uh at 149. Um No, you that Oh yes. Yes, that does have that. Yeah, I was going to say that doesn't have that much Zatanna. Oh, but it has the Parasilton thing. Yeah. Uh, Paul Dini, not a not a great dude um, in his work. Maybe he's one, gotten better. I was going to say, that was 2004. One hopes that by the time that he's as self-reflective as he is in Dark Knight. Remember, though, he don't go all the way in Dark Knight. He doesn't on the page. I don't know how much of his therapy sessions he really wants to put into Dark Knight. Eh, very true. Very true. Okay, definitely no higher than Living Hell at 143. Uh, no, definitely not. I think... Oh, you just said Mad Men Across the Water, 151. Yeah, no higher than that. That works yeah. for me. Uh, so, I mean, that gives us a pretty limited range. That's between 151 and 156. Uh, how does... Actually, how does... Speaking of quippy and wacky, uh, boners... At 154, Joker's Comedy of Errors. Uh, I I would go to my grave clutching that in my hands and enjoying it. So no, it can't be it can't be Batman 66. Okay, then I think it's between Batman six Batman number 66 and Spider-Man Batman. I think it's our new one. Perfect. Perfect. That does it for tonight. Next week. We're taking a little break. We'll be releasing an episode of our Patreon bonus show where we discuss other Batman media because we must steal ourselves for our greatest endeavor. Because after that, 
we're coming back for a special three-part episode 75, where over three episodes, we cover the entire 52 weekly issues of Batman Eternal. Ah, this is what I get for continuing to bug Matt to cover Eternal. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. One sec. Bess, quiet. I think the mic is probably picking you up, you noisy psycho. Uh, one, it's not. Two, leave it in. (laughs) That I call my cat a noisy psycho lovingly? We'd like to thank our (laughs) Patreon. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. Jen Kimman. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley. Go Utes! Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus. Bye, two bucks. Tim Rooney and Giorgio Sergioli for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics. And the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville! And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>